CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 163. It's titled, Is There an Indexing Bubble? About a year ago, I did an episode called, it was episode 127, What If Everyone Started Indexing? And I've been thinking about it for a year. At the end of that episode, I didn't really have any answers what to do. And just to give you the extent of how popular indexing has got, 10 of the 11 largest mutual funds and ETFs in the world are passive index funds. The two largest, which combined have over $400 billion in assets, seek to replicate the performance of the S&P 500 index, a measure of U.S. large company stocks. A total of five of the top 11 funds or ETFs track the S&P 500 index, while four others track the overall U.S. stock market, but still have the vast majority of their assets invested in stocks that comprise the S&P 500 index. Now, the S&P 500 index is a capitalization-weighted index, which means a stock's weight in the benchmark is based on its size as measured by price times the number of shares outstanding. The top 10 holdings in the S&P 500 index comprise 19% of the benchmark, while the top five holdings, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Johnson & Johnson, and Facebook make up 10% of the index. Effectively, nine of the 11 largest mutual funds and ETFs in the world are concentrated in a handful of very large U.S. companies. The other two funds in the top 11 are a Vanguard non-U.S. stock fund and a Fidelity cash fund. Eight of the 11 top funds or ETFs are managed by Vanguard. The largest actively managed mutual fund in the world is the Fidelity Contra Fund with $115 billion of assets under management. It's number 15 on the list of the largest of the world's largest funds. It's considered an active fund because it seeks to outperform a market index, in this case, the S&P 500 index, by having different weights than the index. So what active bet is the fund making? It's doubling down are the largest companies in the S&P 500 index. The Fidelity Contra Fund's top seven holdings, which comprise 30% of its assets, are all top 10 holdings in the S&P 500 index. Even the global stock market is skewed toward the biggest U.S. companies. The MSCI All Country World Index contains 2,746 holdings spread across 23 developed markets, and 23 emerging market countries. MSCI states the index covers approximately 85% of the global investable equity opportunity set. Essentially, that is, it's the stock market. When we talk about the market or the global stock market, the MSCI All Country World Index is a pretty good representation of that. We don't have an index that cap- captures everything, but that's, that's pretty good, 85%. Yet that index is 52% allocated to the U.S. and its top nine holdings, which comprise 9% of the index, are the same top holdings in the S&P 500. 
Passively investing in a market capitalization weighted index is extremely efficient. I do it. I've done it for years. I've recommended it to institutional clients. We have capitalization weighted indices or ETFs in the model portfolios on the money for the rest of us plus. Not not all capitalization weighted ETFs, but, but certainly a representation because it's extremely efficient. The costs are low. For example, the annual management fee or expense ratio for the iShares S&P 500 index is 0.04%. That equates to $0.40 per year for every $100 invested. In addition, because the index holdings within a capitalization-weighted index are weighted by size, funds and ETFs that seek to replicate the index can keep trading costs low because they don't need to rebalance their holdings on a day-to-day basis to keep the weightings in line with the index, as they would if they were trying to keep each holding weighted equally. If they're trying to be an equal-weighted index, as one stock would go up in price and other go down, they would at some point, monthly or some regular interval, have to rebalance to keep the holdings equal-weighted. But with a capitalization-weighted index, as the price of a, a stock goes up, its weighting in the index gets bigger, and so there's not as much rebalancing. Mutual funds do need to do some rebalancing due to cash inflows and outflows out of the funds, but ETFs don't because they don't have a lot of rebalancing turnover due to the unique ways new shares are created and redeemed. And I talk about that in earlier podcast episodes. In fact, there's a there's a, a shorter version. It's go to YouTube for money for the rest of us. And there is an, a video on ETFs and how new shares of ETFs are created and redeem. All passive index funds and ETFs do have some turnover that result in trading cost as the index providers add and drop names from the underlying index. For example, the turnover in the MSCI All Country World Index was 2.7% last year or in the past 12 months. The turnover in the S&P 500 is about 4% per year. Over time, that holdings turnover can add up on a cumulative basis. Morgan Stanley's Adam Parker in a 2015 research note titled, Why is Active Management So Difficult?, wrote that about the S&P 500 index that while there has been relatively less turnover lately, with only 3% of the companies changing since 2013, the cumulative effect of adding and subtracting companies is surprisingly substantial. 10% of the companies in today's index are different since 2011. He wrote this again in 2015. 17% are different since 2009. And fully half the companies are different since 1999. And so there is turnover in terms of the constituents within any market index that an ETF or mutual fund or past index mutual fund tries to replicate. Passively investing in a market capitalization index has become so popular because Active managers, as a group, have underperformed the market indices, and even those that have outperformed have not done so consistently. So this is a pretty compelling case, index, because it's been hard for active managers to outperform. There was a study I saw, the SP Dow Jones recently, in their recent study, showed that of the actively managed mutual funds that were in the top quartile of their peers for the five years ending March 2012, 
only 22.4% remained in the top quartile five years later. Just just randomness would expect 25% would be in the top quartile, but no, because he had 25. It just, it didn't work. It's 22% ended up in the top quartile. There's just not the persistence. And I definitely saw that as an institutional investment advisor. In fact, I would warn my endowment and foundation clients and, and tell them that, that over a three-year period, there's a very good chance that your manager will no longer be in the top quartile, will be, be below median, about a 40% chance, just because the a, a active manager has to structure a portfolio differently than the index and its peers in order to do well against them over the long term, which does mean periods of underperformance. So active managers will overweight and underweight holdings relative to the the market or their market index. And collectively, those overweights and underweights need to deliver excess returns after deducting management fees and trading costs. Nobel laureate William F. Sharp pointed out in a 1991 piece titled The Arithmetic of Active Management that over any specified time period, the market return will be a weighted average of the returns on the securities within the market using beginning market values as weights. That means the return of the S&P 500 index is comprised of the contributions of each underlying stock's performance weighted by its size. It's just a weighted average return. Sharp continues, each passive manager will obtain precisely the market return before cost. From this, it follows as night from the day that the return on the average actively managed dollar must equal the market return. Why? Because the market return must equal a weighted average of the returns on the passive and the active segments of the market. If the first two returns are the same, the third must be also. In other words, a market index's return is driven by the returns of the underlying holdings, which in turn is driven by the buy, sell, and hold decisions of investors. Since indexing investors match the index return before fees, that means active managers collectively must also match the index before fees. Because active managers have higher management fees and higher trading costs due to higher portfolio turnover than passive managers, active managers end up doing worse than index fund investors. It is possible, though, that professional money managers could, as a group, outperform the market if active retail investors picking individual stocks did far worse than professionals. Or professional investors could outperform the market as a group if the index used to represent the market was too narrowly defined and professional investors were able to pick outperforming stocks that weren't part of the capitalization-weighted index. I, As an investment advisor, I saw that. I found that U.S. large company managers as a group tended to do better than the S&P 500 when middle-sized companies or mid-cap companies were doing better because many of those large company managers would pick stocks that weren't part of the S&P 500. And if mid-cap was doing better, then they tended to outperform the S&P 500. But despite these theoretical exceptions, active managers have not outperformed capitalization-weighted indices as a whole. Most have trailed. If anything, active managers are becoming more index-like. 
Ben Hunt, Chief Investment Strategist of Salient Partner, explains, by far the most common coping mechanism for a market we don't like and we don't trust and we don't understand, but a one-way up market for all that is to become smaller in spirit even as we become larger in scale, to become transactional, to collaborate with the forces that turn markets into utilities, to become positioners rather than investors, to become model followers rather than idea generators, to hedge out our most profound career risk, which is not a large portfolio loss because so many others will be in the same boat, but it is rather a small portfolio loss from independent decision-making while others are making non-independent collective gains. In other words, to return differently, to underperform your peers, and because of that career risk, managers become more index-like. Hunt goes on, the point of discretionary stock picking is to take independent, idiosyncratic risk. Seriously, that's the whole entire point. But if that's where career risk squarely sits, and trust me, it does, then to survive what he calls the hollow market, you have to give up your reason for being. For the past eight years, whenever you stuck your neck out with idiosyncratic risk sufficient to differentiate yourself and move the needle, more often than not, you've been slapped around brutally for your trouble. So you stop doing that. You make an accommodation by reducing your portfolio volatility to mimic a 50% allocation to the S&P 500 and a 50% allocation to cash with a teeny tiny idiosyncratic position here and there in order to have a good enough war story to keep your investors from redeeming, you hope. So you effectively lock in your underperformance and pray for the old gods to return and unleash their mighty wrath on global equity markets. Of course, you'll be down 50% of the market in the storm, just like you were in 2008. But hey, at least that would give you a reason to come into the office anything but this. So that's called closet indexing. It's it's trying to look just pretty much like the index with the same risk of the index, maybe holding a little bit of cash, but not being willing to look different than the index because of career risk. And that's why active managers are, are trailing even more. I mean, they're underperforming and they have. And even those that structure portfolios different than the index, oftentimes the aren't patient enough. Their average time horizon, they're patient about three years, two and a half, two and a half years. I found institutional clients where they're ready to fire a manager if there's underperformance. But it actually is possible to outperform the market capitalization weighted index by taking advantage of how the index is structured. Before we discuss how to do that, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in my profession, I've seen how important it is to get quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn can help you with that. It's not just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. 
Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. If you're looking for a central location to get the key information on the markets, the pulse of what's going on, I can't think of a better spot than Yahoo Finance. was just there, could see very quickly what happened today, how stocks sank to end their worst month of 2024. I could see the actual market declines for the U.S., Europe, Asia, what interest rates did, commodities, currencies. I could see holdings of mine that I recently viewed and key headlines from leading financial publications all in one place, one screen at Yahoo Finance without any annoying pop-ups. Plus, with Yahoo Finance, you can get a consolidated view of all your investments and retirement accounts, all in one place. The key to investing is access to quality information, and you can get that at Yahoo Finance. They've completely redesigned the website. It's comprehensive, it's high quality, and it can help you with your investing. So for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So how is it possible to outperform a capitalization-weighted index like the S&P 500? Well, Robert D. Arnott, he's a founder of Research Affiliate. He's a longtime academic, shares how. He says, and this is an article from the Financial Analyst Journal, Wither Finance Theory, it's titled. And in all the links to this week's article, you can find at moneyfortherestofus.com. That's episode 163. Or if you remember my insider's guide, you can sign up and get a free email every week with the show notes, the links, and a summary article. You can sign up for that on the homepage at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or as a U.S.-based listener, go ahead and text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. So he talks about that the price of a stock share is the value in today's dollars of future cash flows. So the price is just the present value of future cash flows. But those cash flows are unknowable. So even if the market is efficient, it's possible some stocks will be priced too high relative to the true value because the future cash flows are unknown and other stocks will be priced too low. And no one knows which stocks are priced too high or too low. And the problem with capitalization weighted index is it systematically overweights the stocks that are priced too high and underweights those that are priced too low because the index is weighted by size. And Arnott gives a, just a, a great example. He, he says, well, let's say you have two stocks and each one has just one share outstanding and their true value, their fair value is $100. But the market has priced one at $150 and the other at 50. So if there's only two stocks, a capitalization weighted index would allocate 75% to the overvalued stock and 25% to the undervalued one. Eventually, the market would discover the mispricing and the prices would move closer together. But under that scenario, an active investor who equally weights the stocks would outperform because the overvalued stocks has, has too much of a weighting because it's a capitalization-weighted index because price is one of the determinants of the weighting. Arnott writes, the fact that capitalization-weighted portfolios must overweight all the overvalued assets 
even if we cannot know which assets are overvalued, may be the principal reason eco-weighted portfolios win in case after case, domestically and internationally within markets and between markets. Now, that was, I think he wrote that back in 2005, maybe 2008. But there was a recent study that he and his co-authors did, and they actually looked at indexing strategies that, or basically we would call these smart beta strategy, we call it factor investing, where there is a tilt away from a capitalization weighted benchmark. And so they looked at these intuitive strategies. So the, why would it, like a, say a value strategy or even maybe a momentum strategy or some strategy that differed from a capitalization weighted strategy. But then they did the exact opposite of what the strategy said to do. So the, the strategy might say, do this, because this intuitively should lead to outperformance, which suggests if we did the opposite, that should lead to underperformance. But in fact, the vast majority of the strategies outperformed. And doing the, the upside down, the reverse, the inverse actually did better. The authors write, this paradoxical empirical result, which is observed in a large array of long-only strategies globally, is a consequence of the fact that seemingly unrelated strategies that are not based on value or small cap size often have unintended and almost unavoidable value and small cap tilts, as do their inverse strategies. So these are, these are hidden unintentional smaller size and value tilt because a market capitalization weighted index tends to overweight. It's big and it over, and we saw how big it was in terms of the, the weightings in, in the big, the top 10 holdings make up almost 20% of the index in the S&P 500. The top five make up 10% of the index. So these strategies just inherently are smaller in terms of their average capitalization and they tend to have somewhat of a value tilt, even though they're not, because they're not necessarily value strategies, but they're not overweight, the most overvalued stocks. And because of that, they actually outperform. They go on, intuitively, any strategy that implicitly weights by a valuation metric that is not price-based would tend to have a lower price-to-value ratio relative to cap-weighted index. We shouldn't attribute much, if any, of a strategy's success to the investment thesis that was the basis of its development. So what they're saying is outperforming strategies is because there's a smaller cap and a value tilt. And I, and I certainly saw that in my investing. We build a track record based on just tilting away from capitalization-weighted indices, typically because we had a value tilt and a smaller cap tilt. Now, there's two important caveats. First, most of the strategies that they looked at exhibited large amounts of tracking error relative to a market capitalization-weighted index. Tracking error means that they deviated substantially over a period of time, which means they did look different than the index, but that means they have periods of underperformance, even though over the long term it might have outperformed. So there could be long stretches of bad times, underperformance, but ultimately were rewarded. Second, and even more important, their analysis did not include transaction cost or management fees. The authors write, for simplicity's sake, we omit the discussion of transaction cost and investment capacity. At the same time, cost and capacity differences between strategies can make a significant difference for investors who are interested in assessing these strategies' true investment benefits. Given that both sensible and senseless strategies outperform for the same reasons, value and small cap tilts 
potential investors would do well to base much of their decisions on a comparison of implementation costs associated with turnover and market price impact. What they're saying is, if we want to outperform a market capitalization index, we need to have a smaller capitalization weight, average capitalization in the index, and, and perhaps we should have a value tilt, but more importantly, we have to keep transaction cost absolutely low. And so many of these smart beta strategies or closet indexers, they don't outperform because of transaction costs. They're turning over the portfolio too much and they have management fees or high management fees. So how do we as individual investors take advantage of that? Is there a way that we could structure an index-like portfolio or a passive portfolio with very, very low fees that has a, a below market or a, a, a smaller average capitalization and outperform. And, it, and as I read that article, I was reminded of an article I read when I first became an investment professional. This was in, in the mid to late 90s. The article was by Robert Kirby, and it was called The Coffee Can Portfolio. And he first talks about indexing and why investors adopt index. Those that, that want to index, they should do it for the right reasons. They believe that the market is efficient in pricing assets so that it is virtually impossible to achieve consistently superior returns. We've seen that that's actually not the case. It is possible to structure a portfolio that outperforms. But the second thing is the underperformance of professional money managers is the result of futile transaction costs. The costs are too high, so the excess return gets dissipated away. Of course, in aggregate, we've seen active managers have to match the return of the index because the passive managers do, and and it's the active and passive that actually make up the market. But he talks about a coffee can portfolio, which harkens back to the old West days when people would put their valuable possessions in a coffee can and keep it under a mattress. He suggests we do the same thing. Go to an investment research organization and, and build a diversified portfolio with their best knowledge, and then tuck it away and don't look at it for 10 years. And it first occurred to him in the middle 50s, 1950s. He was working for an investment council organization, and he would have stock recommendations, and he had a client, and the client would implement them. And then when there, so when there was a buy, they'd implement them. When there was a sell, they, they would implement them. But he was kind of a long-term holder, but occasionally there was a sell. Well, later, the husband of this particular client, he passed away. He was running his own separate portfolio. Well, it turned out that he was taking all of the buy recommendations and he would put $5,000 in a particular holding and he would always put $5,000 in any time there was a buy and he would take the stock certificate back when they had those and they tuck it away. Well, when he died, Turns out he had a he had actually outperformed the investment manager because he never sold. And it was a really interesting portfolio because there were a number of small holdings worth less than two thousand dollars, and there were several large holdings in values in excess of a hundred thousand dollars. Remember, each one got a five thousand dollar weight, and there was a very jumbo holding worth over eighty thousand dollars. It was Xerox. And so it, it was a fascinating because they built this portfolio of pretty good ideas and just never sold. And it did better. And it got to me thinking, well, how, how could we do that as investors? How could we structure a portfolio with the best ideas? Well, not even best ideas, just decent ideas, 
but don't get eaten up with transaction costs and have a capitalization bias that's smaller than a cap-weighted index. Well, now there's technology to do that. There's technology to screen at a site like Finviz. You can screen for different criteria and you can use something like Motif. They're a brokerage and investment platform where you can put 30 stocks in a sleeve and trade the entire basket of stocks for $9.95. So you could, you could structure an investment portfolio. And I'm going to do this. Two sleeves. I'm going to have 60 stocks. I'm going to put the same weight in each stock. So I'll have a 60-stock portfolio comprised of two sleeves. I'm going I'm to put the money in. I'm just not going to sell it for five years. And we'll see how it does relative to the S&P 500. I don't have to worry about how it's doing month to month. I'm just going to let it ride and, and try this out because I've always wanted to do, to do this. I thought I had done this back in 2002 when I took the best names of my top tier managers on our research list, on our recommended list, and structured a portfolio. But there, it didn't work because there was the transaction costs because the managers would change their top holdings. And so the strategy underperformed and that's where I got the idea of doing factor tilts using ETFs, and that strategy actually outperformed, and we we were able to do very very well, and eventually aggregated about two billion dollars in assets. But this coffee can portfolio has intrigued me for several decades. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it two ways. I'm going to screen for stocks. Now you have to be careful when you're screening for stocks. And there's one more article I want to refer to. It's called Facts About Formulaic Value Investing. And, and you'll see the links in the show notes. But they sort of looked at all these quantitative screening and value strategies and found that particularly price to earnings and price to book, didn't it, it underperformed. It didn't work because it was not the price was wrong. It wasn't undervaluation because of that. It was temporarily accounting issues that were, were just wrong. I mean, just, just there was a, a, a accounting dislocation a temporarily, what they called it, temporarily inflated accounting numbers. So the stock looked cheap temporarily, but it really wasn't. And so you got to be careful. And so I'll probably use sales, maybe operating earnings, but I'm also going to get the best ideas from some of the, the managers that I've known over the years, some of the, the sort of the top tier mutual funds, and look at their top holdings again and figure out a diversified sector neutral portfolio, equal weight, the holdings, some will be fundamentally based based on the on these managers. Some will be, I'll do some screens. I'll go ahead and I'll put the holdings on money for the rest of the plus so we can look at them. But it's an experiment. When you invest, you want to experiment. But so we'll see. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. But when we talk about is indexing a bubble, it can't really be a bubble because indexing is primarily capitalization weighted. The market is the market. So if there's a bubble, it will be because the biggest name in the index are getting more and more expensive because more and more money is flowing toward it. And so the way that we could mitigate that is having factor strategies, passive, primarily passive strategies that tilt away from that market capitalization index, but do so in a way that management fees are extremely low and turnover is very, very low. And so many of these smart beta strategies actually have too high a turnover. So maybe we're getting to the point as individuals, we need to build our own quasi-index funds with our own factor tilts with no management fee, very little portfolio turnover, and we can use 
providers like Motif to trade these things very, very inexpensively. So that's episode 163. I want to give special thanks to Alex. He is a mathematician, native to Germany, expat that lives in Thailand. We've gone back and forth. He's shared some really important articles that that helped me kind of walk through that, but it was very helpful, his insight into this particular episode. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing the economy. Have a great week.